Well, hey, Northridge, how are you guys doing? Good. It's good to see you. My name's Levi. I'm one of the pastors here, and man, I just feel like I haven't seen you guys in a year. I, you had to go for it, right? We had to go for it. But if you're here in person, here in Plymouth or in Brighton, glad to have you. And I know a lot of you, you're traveling because of the holidays. And so if you are watching online, I hope it's from someplace warm, someplace with a beach, someplace nice. But this weekend is it's actually extra special for me to be teaching this weekend because exactly three years ago, I remember because it was New Year's weekend, my family, we moved from Wisconsin to Michigan to work here at Northridge Church. So, hey, thank you, yeah. Glad you didn't boo, that's, that's good, that's a good indicator. And uh, honestly, it was, a, it was a big decision. It was a, a, like it's something we had to pray a lot about, we had to process a lot. We had built a life in Wisconsin. We had spent about eight years there, some of our kids were there, we had a lot of meaningful relationships there. And I don't know about you, but the last three years, they've been full of a lot of ups and downs, right? So if, they, if I would have known in the interview process, hey, move to Michigan, and within the first six months, there's going to be a global pandemic. And so get to know people while you stay indoors. And good luck pastoring middle schoolers and high schoolers from Zoom. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it would have shifted or changed my decision. And, uh, but the last three years have also been full of a lot of good things, a lot of really beautiful things. Our youngest daughter, Zion, she was born here in Michigan. We've got another kid on the way. We bought our first house. And, and honestly, most importantly, is like we've really just fallen in love with Northridge, with this church, with, with you guys. And I share all that because at the very beginning of the process, when we're first contemplating the decision, we didn't get all the information. Right? You don't get it all mapped out. You don't get it all planned out. You don't get all the details. All we got was just this one word, this one invitation, belief. All, that's all God said. Hey, will you trust me? You trust that my ways are higher than your ways, that my thoughts are higher than your, that my plan for your life is better than you can dream or you can map out, but it all hinges on this one word, believe. This upcoming year, I wish I could sit with all of you and just lay out, here's what's, here's what's coming. For some of you, it might be the best year ever. It might be just a, a breakout year, just the things that you've been praying for and longing for, and they might happen. This year, for some of you, it might just be a year of incredible hardship, of pain, of loss. I think there's this piece of us that wants to say, God, would you just show me what's coming? But the invitation's different, saying, will you believe? On the front end, will you trust me? On the front end, will you allow yourself to, to invest in, to spend your time and your focus and your energy on this relationship? Will you believe? Now, again, I think if the last three years have taught us anything, it's that you could believe just about anything in today's world, and you'll find somebody that will also believe that or affirm that or believe it alongside of you. And so let's talk about a few things you could believe. One, I love a good conspiracy theory. Anybody else? So you could believe, yeah, a few hands. Uh, you could believe in Bigfoot. It's kind of fun to believe in. Uh, I, I quick Google search. About 13% of Americans believe in Bigfoot. He's on the rise, though. That's up from 11% about two years ago. And none of you will be shocked to find out that it's mostly middle-aged men. And so I've seen a lot of very convincing blurry footage on YouTube 
you could, you could believe in Bigfoot. But I mean, if you've been to the UP, come on. I mean, you know, like if it's anywhere, it's in the UP. Second, you could come to believe what I believe being here in Michigan over the last three years. Like Michigan, it's the best state in all the United States. Yeah, why not? Well, they did a survey and they had everybody rank them and I've got good news and bad news. Let's go, bad news first. We're not number one. Hawaii was number one. I think we get it. I think we all understand. We were number 20, which not bad. I feel like maybe they took the survey during winter because if you go Michigan in, in the summertime, top 10, easily. Here's the good news. We were way better than Ohio, right? We were... <laughs> We are 13 spots better than Ohio. If there's anyone in Ohio, from Ohio in here, I apologize. You could believe, which I'm, I'm going to be honest, I'm excited about. You could believe in the Lions. Come on, any Lions fans? They're exciting. I know you're skeptical, you're skeptical, but they're fun. They're fun. They're at least scoring points. And so I'm excited. I really am. I'm genuinely excited about the Lions. Vegas is not. Vegas, if you're betting, they give them about a 100 to 1 odds of winning the Super Bowl. And so Vegas is, is not high on the lines, but honestly, I think, I think they're fun. And so you could believe any number of things this year. You, you could trust and say you believe anything. I think a lot of us, what we have is we kind of have our on paper belief, and then we have the belief that's actually proved in our lives. For some of you, it's like, what do you believe? It's God put him on the list, my marriage, love, like whatever it might be. But when life, when you navigate the ups and downs of life, like the proof is revealed of what you trust most, of what you've actually built your life on. What do you believe this year? What's at the center of how you're dreaming and processing what you want this upcoming year to be? But it's not just what you believe, it's actually the depth to which you believe it. And so our depth of belief determines our depth of relationship. So you could believe just about anything, but the question is how deeply do you believe it? And so if I say I believe in Bigfoot, that's one thing. Now if I sell and my house, I quit my job and move to the middle of nowhere to look for Bigfoot, it's very different types of belief, right? Weighted a little bit differently. If I say I believe in the lions, that's different than taking every dollar I own and betting on them to win the Super Bowl. Right? It's, a, it's a different type of belief. And so when it comes to your relationship with God, what's the depth of the belief? Like, Are you the type of person that, that you like the concept of God, you like the idea of God, or is it, is it the foundation that you build upon? Is it the center of your world? Is it really what's at the middle of your world. I love this quote by Pastor Louis Giglio. He's a pastor down in Georgia. And he says, God wants to be known by you. And you can know as much about him as you have the appetite and the desire to know. I love that picture. That this year, when it comes to your relationship with God, when it comes to your belief, when it comes to your trust, when it comes to building your life around God, you could have as much as you desire. But what's your appetite? What do you actually long for? What do you anticipate and get excited for? Now, I, I think belief, it's hard. I, I think especially sustained belief, the longer we believe something, it's hard. I think one of the tensions we have 
is that we live in a world of diminishing returns. Meaning this, that at some point in time, you probably were really convinced of something. You really believed in something. Some of you, maybe it was a job, and you believed in your career, where it was going to take you, the satisfaction it would bring you. And so you worked the overtime, you took the extra shifts, you did everything you thought you needed to do, but you, you didn't get the promotion. You didn't, you didn't get the raise. So you're like hesitant to really invest on the front end, to really believe on the front end, because it hasn't really panned out the way you thought it would. For some of you, that's been a relationship. And you had someone that you, you gave them your time and your love and your affection. And you were convinced that this person, they could bring the, the, the satisfaction you're looking for. And at some point in time, they just, they walked away. Or they stopped giving what you were hoping to get out of that relationship. So we struggle to believe this comes into play in our relationship with God. Sometimes we're just like, God, would you just show me? Could you just show me first? Could I just know if you're trustworthy? I think uh, one of the examples, like Christmas was a week ago. Does it feel like a week ago? Does it feel like longer? Christmas was a week ago, guys. And um, I, honestly, now as a parent, I might enjoy Christmas even more than when I was a kid. Like there is something about seeing the joy and the happiness on my kids' faces that is, is the best. But I'll be honest, as a dad, when it comes to Christmas present buying, uh, it's, it's like a group project. Did you ever have a group project in high school? And the beauty of the group project is you, you put a group together and one person does all the work. Yeah, yeah. some of you. You've, but the beauty of it, if you're like me, is that you also share the credit. And this is Christmas morning for us. My wife, she's awesome. She's amazing. But she's so thoughtful. She maps out and plans like all the gifts and when to buy them and what our kids want. And I wake up Christmas morning so excited to see what we bought our kids this year. Like, I, have, I have no, any other dads out there? I see. Yeah. And, and like, I just have no idea. But Christmas morning offers a little bit of this diminished return. Here's what I've learned. That for my younger kids, it doesn't matter how nice of a gift we buy them if it's like exactly what they want. What I find with my younger kids is that after they open all the gifts, the thing they want to play with the most is the trash in the middle of the floor. They want the wrapping paper, they want the bubble wrap, they climb in the big box. No matter how much I try to convince my two-year-old, like, we spent money on this. You're supposed to, like, they want the trash in the middle of the floor. My older kids, it's a little different. What we do there, they open the gifts, and, and they're sincerely grateful and, and excited. But then later that day, what are we gonna do? We're gonna take the new gifts, we're gonna go into the room, where we're going to find the old gifts we gave them last year that are now in the corner collecting dust. We're going to sell those on Facebook Marketplace, right? And we're going to replace it with the new stuff. And that's one diminished return, but also the emotional diminished return. Because at some point, my kids are going to come to me that day, and they're going to say, Dad, I'm so bored. And in that moment, I'm going to pray for the grace of Jesus, right? Like, I just spent so much money on your happiness. Why are you not happy? And we laugh, but the only difference between our kids and us as adults is that we spend way more money on the things that give us a diminished return. And so you buy the new phone, because you gotta have the new phone. Everybody's getting a new phone. 
Your new phone, it's going to lose 30 to 40% of its value as soon as it's not new. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. They're going to keep making new ones. Like, it, I mean, we're back to now flip phones. We went from flip phones to non-flip. We're, we're back, full circle. If you've ever bought a new car, my wife and I, when we first got married, right, we bought a new car. The moment, it's foolish, it's stupid, right? The moment you drive it off the lot, what happens? It loses value. 10 to 15% of that value, just it drives off the lot with you. So we live in a world of diminishing returns. But if we're not careful, this also starts to be at play in our relationships. So here's my question for you as we, we start the new year. Are you experiencing diminishing or developing relationships? Like not just the stuff, but for the people that matter most. Think about your spouse, your kids, parents, friends. Like over this last year, did you guys, did you make memories? Did you have like the conversations that really mattered, that, that really needed to happen? Did they grow or did they diminish? So we, we see this. If we're not intentional, if we don't plan, if we don't take time, the things that once had great value to us, the things that we once centered our lives around, the, the relationships that mattered most, they'll start to diminish. Second question, even more important, are you experiencing a diminishing or developing relationship with Jesus? This is the beauty of, of January 1, so you can look back and ask that question, like, as I'm headed into this new year, do I trust and believe in what Jesus is doing in my life more now than I did a year ago? Where they're defining moments or seasons, where there are times when I was at church, I heard so clearly what God was leading me towards. Was I obedient in those were there moments in the stillness and the, the quiet of your own house, of your own life, and your way to work, where the conviction, where the guidance of Jesus was, was so apparent? Are you a year later and you're like, what's, what's happened? There's a season I was so, like, I, I truly loved God. I built my life on who he was and what he was doing. And I don't, something's changed. You experiencing a diminishing or developing relationship. There's this passage in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and the Apostle John, he's writing a warning to this church, the church of Ephesus, and he says this in Revelations 2, verses 4. He says, You have forsaken your first love. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you first did. What's he talking about? He's talking about a diminished relationship. There was this, you as a church, there was this time and your love for God was so deep. The conviction was so strong. The, the way that you centered your life, that you believed in what God was doing in and through you was so strong. And over time, you've let that fade. But this is, has never been the plan. There's a plan. God has a plan. And it's a way better plan as God's plan is to have a continually developing relationship with you. The hope is this, is that at some point in time that every human being would have the opportunity to experience a love that you cannot experience anywhere else but in the presence of God. 
that at some point in time, all the weight of your sin and your shame and your guilt, that you would be able to, to feel free of that because of the grace of God. That at some point in time, you would realize that the meaning of life is to know and love Jesus, and you would build your life around that, but it wouldn't just be stuck to a moment. And I think for some of us, this is what happens. We pray the prayer, we get baptized, we have that one small group, that, man, that small group is so good. We have these, these defining moments, but there's not that continually developing relationship. We're not intentional enough to, to really say, how do I continue to grow and learn more and trust deeper and surrender more of who I am to Jesus? But this is the plan, that you would get to know and experience God, in such a, a deep and meaningful way that it would motivate you to greater belief. And as you follow and walk out that belief, it would lead you to greater belief. I mean, this is, this is what defines the best relationships. If you've ever been and had that marriage vow, you've ever held that newborn kid, what, it's that moment where you're like, I want this to keep growing. Right? You don't want to parent the same way a newborn that you parent a teenager. It won't work. There needs to be growth. It needs to develop. It needs to shift. It needs to deepen over time. And this is the invitation on the table. Uh, we just read about the church in Ephesus. Paul actually writes to them well before John does in the book of Ephesians. It's the same church. And he writes about this better plan. Here's what Paul writes in Ephesians 3, starting in verse 17. He says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, everything you're about to read, it's going to be based on the premise of belief, that you would really form your life around Jesus. He says this, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. This is my favorite part. This is such a beautiful picture of the invitation that you have, that I have, that we could grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ that you could spend your whole life walking in relationship with Jesus and there would be more, more to discover. That in the hardest moment of life, when you wonder, is there anyone else out there that understands what I'm going through, that you would have a savior, that you would have a friend who's right alongside you. That in the most joyful moments, that you'd realize that there's, a, there's even more to discover, there's even more to tap into, that this relationship, it's not done, it's not ending, but there's more to be had. He continues on. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. I don't know, but as I look around the world, I see a lot of people, and it feels like they're living out of a, a, an empty space. And so when the invitation comes to live out of the fullness of God, it just sounds so good. Are you living out of the fullness of God? Like, do you trust him so deeply? Are, are you so in love with who he is? Do you trust him and what he's doing? That's just, it's fullness that's overflowing. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do immeasurably, immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to the, his power that is at work within us, to him 
be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the plan. The plan is that there's no stop, there's no ending, that it can keep growing, that it can get better and better and better as the years go on. It, it might call you to a deeper place of surrender. He might call you to move. He might call you to a, a different type of career. I don't, I don't know what he'll call you to, but it's saying on the front end, I trust that every step of the way, wherever he would lead me, wherever he would guide me, that his plan is going to be so much better. It's amazing. It's overwhelming. When you really start to understand, when you've, if you've really experienced the amazing grace of Jesus, this is like the best way to put it. In fact, that's one of my, my favorite words it is amazing. In Scripture, when people encounter Jesus, this is one of the words they use most common. There's about 30 times when Jesus, and he's teaching, and it says the crowd is just, they're amazed. They, can har- they marvel. They can hardly, like, understand just how powerful his teaching is. Or Jesus, he does a miracle, and it says the crowd is amazed. And so it's used over 30 times. Ironically enough, there's only twice in Scripture that it talks about Jesus being amazed. Now, I don't, that's interesting to me, but I, I love that thought, that Jesus, in both times, are in reaction to human belief. The only two times that Jesus is amazed, and it's both based off of how people believe in him. So I think it's noteworthy, and I, I want to look at them. The first one is in Mark chapter 6. It says this, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. There's one of those examples. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And look at this. It says, and they took offense at him. They go from being amazed by his teaching, by who he is, by the words he's saying, to being offended by him. Verse 4, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. I love that, that even when there's doubt, even when people don't believe Jesus, he still can do miracles. But verse 6, he says, he was amazed at their lack of faith. Only twice in Scripture that Jesus is amazed. One of them is in his own hometown, and it's at the lack of faith. The people who knew him most, the people who had been around him most, and they believed the least, and they experienced him in a diminished way. I want to talk about this. I want to talk about three characteristics of a diminished faith. I've asked you, are these at work in your own life? The first one we see in the story is that they diminish the truth Jesus spoke. In verse 2, did you see it? it says, where did this man get these things? They asked, what's this wisdom that has been given him? Right away, they go from, this is amazing, this is good news, that there's some truth that he's speaking that is amazing, to starting to question it. Listen, if you don't have a truth, you, you don't have anything to build on. And in a day and age of such relative truth, subjective truth, 
you believe your truth and I'll believe my truth, there's a lot of people who don't have anything of substance to build a life around. For some of you, this is your world. You believed in something, and the moment that, that it got hard or, or it didn't follow through, like it just felt like it was crumbling in your hands. They diminished the truth that Jesus spoke. They stopped believing that what Jesus was saying to them was true and was trustworthy. I'm going to be honest. I've lived my truth. It's terrible. It's not a good truth. My truth is rooted in selfishness. When I've lived my truth, I've hurt people close to me. I've hurt myself. Like, my truth is not a trustworthy truth. For some of you, it's this reminder to get back to the truth of Jesus, to value what he's trying to speak and say in your life. The second thing we see is that they diminished the miracles Jesus had done. Same thing. They asked this question, what are these remarkable, remarkable miracles he is performing? So on one hand, they're saying this is remarkable, and on the other hand, they're questioning it. It's kind of interesting to me. Sometimes uh, I'll be having a conversation with somebody, and I'll let them, I'm one of the pastors at Northridge, and because of maybe the, the size of Northridge or the number of seats in our auditorium, sometimes people will approach what happens in this place with skepticism. And they'll almost view, like, my church family as maybe a place that experiences a lesser version of Jesus. And I, I tell them boldly, I'm like, you don't know the church I know. Because I know a church where, where the miracle, Jesus has done some miracles in this place. But there's some people, there's some marriages in this room that were on the brink of divorce. And only by the grace of God. Only because of a divine miracle, there's been restoration and there's been healing. Because I know some people in, in my church, and they, they had addiction that was pervasive in their life, and they didn't know if there was ever going to be freedom, but Jesus worked a miracle in their lives, and now where they're headed and how they're living is completely different. I know some people, they didn't have anywhere else to turn, and they're friends of mine, and they're in this church and Jesus did a miracle in their life. And for some of you, this is your story. At some point in time, God did something profound in your life. You had nowhere else to turn, and you turned to Jesus, and he did what you thought was impossible. And some of you need to remind yourself of the miracles God has done in your life. Some of you have let those really meaningful moments those profound, life-changing work that Jesus has done in your life, and you're starting to question it. Was that real? It, it wasn't your own self-help. It, it wasn't just nice people around you. It was Jesus doing what only Jesus can do. I think it's way easier to be skeptical than it is to believe. I think in our culture, we see a culture that actually champions the more skeptical you can be. I want to be the type of person that believes that Jesus, he's still working that this upcoming year that Jesus is going to do a greater work, that there's more lives that are going to be changed and transformed by the miracle-working power of Jesus. I want to be the type of person that my default isn't just skepticism and questioning everything God's trying to do. And last is they diminish the authority of Jesus. Sometimes our belief is very evident in the words that we say. Did you notice the language they use around Jesus? What do they say? They say, we know this guy. This is a carpenter. 
I mean, we know his siblings, his sisters, they're, they're, they're here. And the Savior of the world, the one who's about to go to the cross to die for their sins, the one who could actually transform their lives, and, and, and they've taken all the authority out of his name. This idea of a diminishing faith, honestly, it's one of the hardest parts about my job. I work with all of our different age groups, birth through college. And one of the hardest parts is when you start to see the numbers and statistics specifically for kids who grow up in church. And what they find is that seven out of 10 kids who grow up in church, who sit in services, who learn the Bible stories, who make the crafts, who go on camps and retreats, that seven out of 10 of them, once they graduate college, they're going to walk away from their faith. That this population that has had the most proximity to Jesus, who's had the most access to see and hear the truth of who he is and to see miracles happen and to hear the profound wisdom and authority that he carries, that they would almost become so familiar that they would become desensitized to him. The remedy is this. If you're a parent in this room, I'm begging you to have a continually developing relationship with Jesus to not just tell the one salvation story that you had one time, but that you would sit with your kids and say, here's what we're believing God's gonna do this year. Here's how we're trusting in what he's doing this upcoming year. Here's how he's challenging us. Here's how we're gonna believe in a deeper way in what he's doing. If you've been following Jesus for a while, we need you to be active in this. What we need is the people who've, who've taken a life of developing their faith to get around and model the better way. There's a, the second story. I, like, I really like the second story. It talks about, again, Jesus being amazed at the belief of somebody. It's found in Luke 7, starting in verse 1. It says this, When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion, this is a Roman soldier. He's a Roman commander in the army. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This is very uncommon. The the Jewish nation, Israel and Rome, they were enemies. And so for Israelites to come to Jesus and plead for a miracle, this already is, is a very compelling story. But here's what they say. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go. And he goes. And this one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. A very different story. Here's a Roman soldier who never meets Jesus. In fact, he he doesn't even consider himself worthy to meet him or to have Jesus be in his home. Very opposite of his hometown. And so I want to talk about the three characteristics of a developed faith. And here's my prayer. My prayer is that 
we would let these take root into our life this year, that we would grow our faith. The first is that we believe in the truth of Jesus. So this man, he never meets Jesus. What he goes off of is the stories he's been told. And the way that people talk about Jesus is that the truth he has, that he, he's the Lord, he's the Savior. Do you believe in the truth of Jesus? When you come on a weekend, you hear the passages, do you, do you trust that his love for you is greater than you could ever understand? Do you trust it enough to build a life on it? Do you trust it enough that how you set your goals and your priorities for the upcoming year, it's based off of his word and his truth and, and how he's leading you? But they believe in the truth of Jesus. The second is that believe in the miracles Jesus had done. And in the moment that this man needs a miracle, he goes to where he believes a miracle can happen. Most of the time, our belief will be shown in our hardest moments, when we, when we really need a miracle to happen. And in this moment, where does he turn? He turns to this person that he's never met, but he's heard. He says, if anyone can do this impossible thing, it's Jesus. So he chooses to believe in the miracles Jesus had done. And last, he believed in the authority of Jesus. And look at the language he uses compared to the people in his hometown. He calls him Lord. He, he gives him a title. He says, I don't, I don't know much, but what I understand is authority. I understand when somebody actually has power to do something. And Jesus, if you say it's going to happen, I'm going to trust that it's going to happen because I recognize that you're somebody with authority. And this year, if you took time to trust Jesus in a deeper way, start to pray that he would show up in a miraculous way in your life, that, that when life is hardest, he's not your last resort, but he's your first response. If we become the type of people that lift high the authority in the name of Jesus, what could happen in this place? And so here's the invitation at the very beginning of this year. It's to choose to believe in the truth and the, and the authority of Jesus. For some of you, this last year, as I'm describing diminished returns, like that was this last year for you. You thought you could put your trust in a person. You thought you could put it in yourself. You thought you could put it in any number of other places, and it just hasn't worked I'm telling you there's a better plan. I'm telling you there's a better option out there. It's that you stop living your own truth, you stop living by your own authority, and all you have to do, you just have to choose to believe. You don't have to perform. You don't have to show that you're worthy. All you have to simply do is say, Jesus, I trust that your way is better than my way. I trust that your plan is better than my plan. So I'm going to pray just a simple prayer. If that's you and you're here in the room or you're watching online, just pray some version of this in your heart. But church, let's pray. Jesus, we believe in you. We believe that you came to earth, that you died on a cross, and through the work of the cross, my life can be different, that I don't have to any longer be defined by my sin or my shame or my guilt or my pain but my life can be defined by my relationship with you. And so Jesus, I choose to believe in your name 
in your authority and in, and in your truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you pray that, again, we don't want it to just be a moment. We, we don't want you to just have a, a nice moment. We want to see growth happen. And so if you prayed that prayer, I'm going to ask, would you text the word Northridge to 31616? Northridge to 31616. Because we've got people, we've got people on staff, we've got volunteers that we want to come alongside you. We want to see you grow. We want to see this be the year that you grow in your relationship with Jesus like never before. But I do think for the rest of us, some of you, you've, you've had that moment. And I think there's another opportunity. I think for us as a church, I think for you individually, and here's the opportunity, that we can make a greater impact when we align our belief. We can make a greater impact when we align our belief. And I want, I want a year of impact. I want a year that Jesus does something awesome. And so I talked at the beginning about diminished returns, which is this financial term that as I invest in something slowly over time, it loses value. Well, now that I'm hitting middle age, I've learned of a better financial term, and it's called compound interest. Does anybody know compound? I got a few yeses. People like compound. If you've never heard of it, get in the game. Get in, get in some compound. Here's how compound interest works, is that I invest in something, and that investment gives me a profit. And so then what I do is I take that initial investment, and now that profit, and I invest it again. And then I invest it again. And then I invest it again. And what happens is that this thing that started out small, that, that didn't really have a lot of great value over time, it starts to grow. And it starts to multiply. And now I'm getting really excited about my bank account, right? And I think that some compound interest, I think that some compound faith happens when we get together as a church. I, the thing about compound interest is that the greater percentage of your investment that's, that's invested, the greater the return. I think the more of us that choose to say this year, like never before, I'm going to believe with a deeper conviction. I really am. I'm going to build my whole life on the truth of who Jesus is. The more of us, the bigger percentage of us that buy into this, we can see God do something really beautiful through this church. And so three quick challenges, three ways that I think stir each other up and challenge us to greater faith. One is through generosity. When the church chooses to sacrificially say, we will give for the greatest needs of the world, there's something inspiring that happens. Like, if you're a part of Northridge, you just, like, this is a generous church. I remember last year when the Ukraine offering was presented, I wasn't really sure what to expect. And to see, like, within days, within weeks, like, people saying, I can, I can give my part. And you give, it stirred some belief in me. Like, there's, God is still doing something. So generosity is one. The second is when people choose to be a part of the kingdom of God, by the work of God, the wake the world up to Jesus part of the mission. And just look around this room. Imagine if all of us were so convinced that Jesus was the only foundation to build a life on that you're like, I have to share this with somebody else. I mean, how, how exciting would that be if in a few months from now, if from now till Easter, all of a sudden, I'm so convinced that Jesus is the only thing to build your life on that I'm going to share it with a friend or a neighbor or a coworker. Imagine what would happen in this. It would be, it would be exciting. And the third is there's something special that happens when we worship together. And so the last three years, a lot of ups and a lot of downs and so for my wife and I, our routine is normally at the 516 service. We come and we sit together and we sit over in section A, kind of towards the back. 
in my job, like your job, there's some weeks that I come in and I'm, I'm full of hope. I'm really excited for what's going to happen. I'll be honest, there's some weeks and it's, my heart is heavy and I come just out of sheer discipline. And there's something special that happens when I'm sitting in my back chair in section A and I can look out and I see my church family. I can hear the voices and there's something that stirs my belief when I see the belief around me. There's something that happens when I lift high the authority, when I sing about the faithfulness of my Savior. And so the best way, if we're going to start the year off anyway, I'm going to invite you to stand. And we're going to take a moment to worship. And my prayer is that for these next few moments, that your faith would be stirred, that you would believe that what God wants to do in your life this year would be even greater than what happened last year.